Gracious God and Father, you have promised that your holy word, which goes forth from your mouth, will not return to you empty, but it will accomplish what you desire, and it will succeed in the matter for which you've sent it. May your word have its way, we pray in every heart this day, through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Our gospel reading is our sermon text on the back of your worship bulletin. And the text is really about movement. And, and this is a turning point in the gospel. Uh, prior to Luke 9, verse 51, Jesus has been ministering in Galilee. That's northern Israel. And, and now he's taken that turn toward Jerusalem. And, and this journey to Jerusalem takes up 10 chapters of Luke's gospel from uh, the end of chapter 9 uh, through uh, about the third, first third of chapter, 10, uh, chapter 19. And so it's, it's a huge section, this travel narrative. And so the gospel reading for today is really about movement, it's about motion, it's about travel, it's about pilgrimage. And, and all of us, all of us are on pilgrimage. All of us are traveling. We not only move from one location to another, but we move through time. We travel forward in time. So even if you're standing still, even if you're seated, motionless, you're moving forward into the next moment. All of us travel not only geographically from one point to another, but we travel through time. And time is one directional. We travel forward into time. We move into the future every moment, every day. We don't move backward to the past. Why, I don't know. There's no reason why time shouldn't move both directions, but it moves only one, into the future. And we continually journey into the next moment, into the next day. We can't help ourselves. We are wanderers, we're pilgrims, we're always on the move even if we're seated. And that's true of our Lord as well. He is traveling. He's moving not only from Galilee to Jerusalem where he will suffer and die and rise again and ascend, but he's moving into the future, his future. Verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, referring now to his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, all of that together is his being taken up out of this world. And notice the days are drawing near. In other words, he's moving toward them. He's moving into the future. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. And, and that speaks of his determination. He will not be dissuaded from this journey. He won't go to the right or to the left. And Isaiah captures this in our first reading for today where Isaiah writes, and this is actually, this is one of the servant songs. These are really the words of the pre-incarnate Christ. Because the sovereign Lord helps me, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I set my face like flint and I know that I will not be put to shame. To set your face towards something as Jesus is doing 
is a very strong hint that he's going to be opposed, but he won't be dissuaded. Verses 52 and 53. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So you may know that the Samaritans and the Jews did not get along. They were enemies. They were different ethnic groups, kind of slightly. But they were different religions. And the Samaritans worshipped in Samaria on Mount Gerizim, and they felt that was the place to worship. The Jews, of course, worshipped in Jerusalem. But as Jesus would say in John chapter 4, the day is coming, and now has come, when you'll neither worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem, for the Father seeks worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And of course, Jesus is the truth, and the spirit always points us to Jesus. He's the focal point of our worship, and he ought to be. But notice, point B, under Roman number one, Jesus' journey begins with rejection. And this rejection in Samaria foreshadows his rejection in Jerusalem. It foreshadows the cross, where he will be rejected not by a different ethnic group, the Samaritans, but he'll be rejected by his own people. Verse 54. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Now, there's precedent for this. Fire coming down from heaven and consuming the enemies of God. When the king of Israel sent men to uh, arrest the prophet Elijah, he called down fire from heaven to consume the soldiers. And so James and John probably have this in mind. God did it once. God will do it again. But notice, Jesus does not rebuke the Samaritans. He rebukes his own disciples. And here's why. Because Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. John 3, 17. His mission is not one of condemnation, it's one of forgiveness. To destroy the Samaritans for their rejection of Jesus is not in keeping with the mission of Christ. Well, there is a day coming when we'll all have to answer for what we've done or left undone if we're not forgiven already. But that day's not yet. This is a day of grace. And so point C, Jesus rebukes James and John, foreshadowing the cross and the Samaritan mission. You see, the wrath of God will not fall upon the Samaritans, and it will not fall on you or me. Rather, it will fall on Jesus. For all humanity, it will fall on Christ and Christ alone. Now those who reject that mercy will meet judgment on the last day. But the point is, what he did for you and me, he did for all. The wrath of God falls upon him, not on us. So it foreshadows the cross, 
And it also foreshadows the Samaritan mission in Acts chapter 8, where Philip the Evangelist goes down to Samaria and preaches, and the people receive the word of God. It may be some of the very same people who reject him today are accepting him a little later in Acts chapter 8. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. There's nowhere to lay his head. He is an alien among us. He's an alien in this world. He's a stranger here. He's just passing through. He comes from heaven down to earth to be born, to suffer, die, to rise, and to ascend. And you and I are strangers and pilgrims here as well. We didn't come from heaven, but we've been born from heaven. And that's our home. That's our destination. We are strangers and aliens here also. And the more we know that, the more we think about that and remember it, the more the Christian life and the Word of God makes sense. Verse 59. To another, he said, follow me. Roman numeral 2, part A. Since the fall, God's people have been pilgrims. We've been wayfarers in the earth. In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall into sin, God exiled Adam and Eve from the garden. The garden was their home. And we look forward to Eden restored, the new heavens and the new earth, where God will walk among us. We will see his face. But Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, and ever since then, humanity has been on pilgrimage, wandering, looking for a place of rest. And that rest, of course, is Christ. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, God called him to leave his native land, to leave his father's house, and to go to the land that God would show him. He didn't know where he was going, but he knew God was leading him. Pilgrim. John 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I'm the road. That's what way means. I'm the road, the path. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, we're, we're coming to the Father. We're moving. We're on the move. And Hebrews chapter 11 really illustrates how our spiritual ancestors, people from the Old Testament, figures from the New, and people down through history that have believed in the Lord, we're all on pilgrimage. We're all aliens and strangers here on the move toward what is permanent. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Part B. We want to place conditions on discipleship. We want to place conditions on following Jesus and journeying in his way. <clears throat> let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. 
but is for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's the urgency of his call. Nothing else should supersede it. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Can you imagine if you were a farmer hiring somebody to plow your field and they're not really paying attention to where they're going and they veer to the left, they veer to the right, and the furrows are crooked? You wouldn't hire that individual back. Part B, we want to place conditions on discipleship, conditions on the journey. We will follow Jesus, but it will be on our terms, not his. I will follow you, but don't expect me to listen to your word every day or every week. I will follow you, but don't expect me to give sacrificially. I will follow you, but don't expect me to remain married to my spouse. All of these are conditions that we want to impose on the grace of the call to follow Jesus. And, and unwittingly, those are refusals of the call. Part B1, Jesus claims priority over the best, not the worst of human relationships. He claims priority over those whom are, who are closest to you. He comes first. That's how it works. And the truth is, those closest to you need you to be that way. You're of the most help to them when Jesus comes first, not second or third. And number two, Jesus never asks us to choose him over the devil, but to choose him over the family. He asks us to choose him over the family. Notice how high Jesus sets the bar when it comes to discipleship. Uh, let me first go and bury my father? No. I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say, well, say farewell to those at my home. No. He sets the bar extremely high. Extremely high. And, and so we hear these words as law. Condemnation. I haven't done that. I haven't done that faithfully. I haven't done it consistently. All of us can speak in that way. But I submit that those demands of discipleship are also gospel because first and foremost, they speak of Jesus. It's a description of how he is for your sake and for mine. He did not look back. He did not put his earthly family first. Otherwise, he would never have gone to the cross. The sacrifice he made, he made for you and he made for me. And when we understand that, when we understand that Jesus sets the bar high because he alone will clear it, understanding that is the key to arousing within us a desire to do the same. We won't do it consistently. We won't put him first 
in every situation. But that desire to do so grows because of the way he is toward us. It's the gospel that begets that urge, that desire to follow him faithfully no matter what. And to whatever degree we do that, it's due to Christ and Christ alone and his faithfulness toward us. Point C, like the disciples, we will continue to fail, but Jesus' response will be one of forgiveness. Just as he restored Peter, he restores you and me when we turn to him in repentance and faith. Paul writes to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And I like to say, and I'll say it as often as I need to, that we get to heaven not because of our commitment to the Lord, even though we have some commitment, but we get to heaven because of his commitment to us. That's how it works. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. And he's the kind of leader we want to follow. It's that kind of a leader that creates a following. Why? Because his ability to forgive is greater than our ability to fail. And we follow. By the power of the gospel at work in our hearts, we follow. We're on a journey. We're traveling. We're traveling geographically. We're traveling chronologically into the future every day. You know, someone said that time is God's way of preventing everything from happening at once. Can you imagine how confusing life would be if everything happened at once? This is why Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, there's a time for every purpose under heaven. For everything there's a season and a time for every purpose. Yeah, God spaces everything out according to time so that it won't all happen at once. And by his grace, we journey forward in time. We travel through time toward the last day, our heavenly home, by his grace. In Jesus' name.